This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com Spiritual, you see spirit and ritual. And as we discussed, the spirit is of the soul and the ritual is of the body. Rituals you can video, spirit you cannot. And you don't know what's going on in someone's mind when they are doing a spiritual thing. Rituals are the what? Spirit is the why. Okay, and they are both essential. You have to know what you're doing. You got to know why you're doing it. And you know, you meet, you meet anyone doing anything, you will ha- notice they have a what and a why. Stop someone in a car. Hi, uh, what are you doing? I'm driving to work. Why? Because I work. You know, it's the only way to get there. You know, no matter uh, what are you doing? I'm eating ice cream. Why? Because I like ice cream. You understand that no matter where you go, there's going to be what's and whys, but if you start losing one or the other, then things aren't so good. If you don't know what you're doing, which is off the case, um, no offense, just kidding. Um, if you don't know what you're doing, so, so, you know, you're obviously, you're really in trouble, but if you know what you're doing, you got to know why you're doing it. And by the way, if the whys, this is the danger of whys, is if you lose your whys of why you're doing something, you'll probably stop doing it. Which in certain circumstances, that might be okay. But in other circumstances, it might be bad. Like, for example, uh, what if what is marriage, and, but you're losing your whys? What are you going to do, get divorced? You married a girl, why? She was thin. That's going to be great on this video for all time. She was thin. She was um, nice and giving. Okay, you get married. Eight months later, she's very pregnant. She's no longer thin. She's no longer nice. She's no longer giving. Okay? Now, if you let your whys dictate the what's, you're in big trouble. You know, at that point, can you imagine a guy gets divorced? Why did he divorce you? Because I got pregnant. You understand? It's, like, it's ridiculous. But you see how the whys don't necessarily dictate the what. Sometimes the what have to be just based on principles. Meaning it just comes from commitment. I'm married to you and that's it. I'm committed to that. No whys can pull me off. I'm committed as a Jew to live Judaism, so I've got plenty of whys to stay in bed this morning while my tefillin awaits and the minion awaits. i got every why to stay in bed this morning. And I can't even remember the whys I should possibly get up. But I'm not going to let my whys get in the way of my Judaism. I peel myself out of bed, get that tefillin on, get to that minion. So I'm committed. So there is such a thing, and we're really distinguishing something else altogether that we haven't distinguished yet, is that there's there's whys that cause what's, meaning why am I doing this? Why am I doing that? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Because it makes sense to me to do it. But there's another kind of thing where it's, I'm now committed to this thing. I'm committed to this woman. I'm committed to my parents. So as much as my dad might be an overbearing, judgmental, you know, what are you going to do with your life kind of guy, 
and and makes me feel like I'm nine years old when I talk to him. And how long are you going to spend on the phone with someone who makes you feel like you're nine? Right? Probably very short. No. He, even though he gave me every why to get off the phone with him, I'm committed to that man. I'm staying on the phone with him. I'm staying on the phone with him. He's only calling me about, he's only speaking to me about money because he loves me. I don't think my dad ever called Eli over here. My dad ever called you to ask you about how you're doing financially? <laughs> Why is he calling me? Why is my father calling me? He loves me. Now, I've got my own life at this point, but he as a father, a father will always worry about his child's survival, no matter how old his son is, no matter what he does, no matter how much money he makes. The father's going to want to know. And that's just who he is. That's how fathers show love many times. So I, with my own financial plans, my own financial life, have to be confident enough to know that I'm fine. And when he talks money, all I hear is I love you the whole time. In the old days, when why ruled my what, I would get off the phone as soon as he called. He could never call at the right time. Anyone ever notice your father can never call at the right time? That's because. You, know, you want to speak to someone who makes you feel like a little kid? No, of course not. So when my whys ruled my what, I used to say, oh, Dad, you know, it's a terrible time, i got to go. When my when I became committed to the what, no matter what, no matter what's what he's saying, at that point, I stayed on the phone with him, and he couldn't call at the wrong time because that's my father calling, and I'm going to speak to him. Now my wife, you know, it used to be when my wife saw the caller ID and said my father's calling, she used to be like, oh. Your dad's on the phone, and she knew that would be a two-minute conversation. She knew that would be a two-minute conversation. Uh, nowadays, when she sees my father on the caller ID, she's like, don't. You know, because that, that could be a half hour, 45 minutes of talking to my father. In fact, one time we were Skyping, and uh, my father's on the screen, and I'm on the, his screen. And, of course, what's he talking about? Money. And I start crying. I'm staring at my father, he's getting older, I'm crying, and, and he's like, are you crying? He's looking into his camera, you know, into his screen. I said, I said, yeah, I'm crying. I said, why? I said, you're just so beautiful. You, you care so much for me. Like, uh, you're so concerned about my welfare. Like, what a feeling to have someone in this world who cares that much. And, and then he's like, crying and my wife's been calling me to go to Mincha you know because it's like sundown you know in the other room whereas before when my dad called it'd be like dad you know I gotta go to Mincha that's when the wives ruled my what's but now when my father so my wife finally comes in the office to see where am I why aren't I going to pray Mincha she sees the both of us silently crying into our computer screens and she says, you guys are ridiculous. <laughs> anyway, this is, this is actually work. This is the work that I did with my dad and got my dad back in my life like seven years ago. I call it unorphaning. I call it orphaning when you need your space to be a man. I call that orphaning. And unorphaning is when you finally realize, wait, this is ridiculous. I'm, not, I'm losing my father. 
you know, and the pain of mourning is the worst for those. Most people will go through very difficult mourning as a result of uh, what I'm discussing because because they realize that they killed them way before they died, and and for their own needs, their own emotional well-being, and and the interesting thing is, once someone's six feet under, they're no longer dangerous. You can't even remember what it was. You literally cannot remember what it was that bothered you. It's a strange thing. You've probably heard eulogies where all of a sudden this guy's like the most righteous guy of the generation. Like, how come everyone's eulogizing him like that? Why does everyone so, so righteous after death? It's because for some reason, once they die, you can't remember what was the issue in the first place. And all you know is you can't ever get him back to say, I love you, or to be held in a hug again by him. And I have met many people, many people, especially as a rabbi going to shivas and stuff, who said that, and after shivas, and years later, people who didn't even sit shiva because they didn't notice it shiva, but people who said that, that they, even wealthy people who said they would trade every penny they've got. They would sell their homes and their cars and everything they've got for one hour with their father. Who they had, you know, long since, you know, when they were teenagers, they already started with the, you know, dad, it's not a good time. So, I've given this class several times and it's important that I give this little excerpt because if it means taking my advice, uh, you'll thank me. And I've actually been thanked a few times by people who tragically lost a father and said that they were in my class like you know like see the guy they said yeah I was in a, your class where you did your little excerpt on fathers uh, about two years ago I was there well you should know that I did call my father after that class and I had that conversation with him and and he actually got whatever he killed in a road accident like three weeks later and I was I, I'm telling you I'll never forget that you gave me the impetus to become complete with my father. And by, by saying, Dad, you know, I've really not been in touch. I've been not able to really communicate. Uh, I haven't stayed on the phone with you. I don't call you back. And the reason is, is because I felt like a little kid. Uh, but I realize now I'm, I'm really an adult, and that's ridiculous for me to feel that way. And, um, and I love you, and I'm going to share my life with you from now on. And you want to know the coolest thing about everything we just said? Is that your father or your mother or your sibling, whoever it is that you're having this issue with, doesn't need to change. I mean, what in the end is my father talking about when we Skype? Same thing. I've got my money. But I've got my father in my life and he has me sharing my life with him. That's the beauty of this work, because what have we all been saying about fathers or that sibling or that uncle or that that mom? You know what we've been saying all the time? I'd be much closer with them if they would only change. We put it on them. It's their fault that we're not close. But in truth, when you point your finger at someone, you have to realize there's three more fingers pointing right back at you. It's three to one. Let me explain. You see, there's something inside of me, some insecurity inside of me, that that person triggers. Dads are a big one. Our whole feeling of being capable of making it and stuff. So there's something inside of me that that person triggers. 
inside of me. And my only defense is to label them with some judgment like overbearing or judgmental or uh, uh, whatever, uh, squashing or whatever they are, whatever we say they are, dominating. We give them some judgment. And then we're totally innocent because why should I be in a fully, why should I be in an expressed relationship with a dominating person? He's a dominating person. Every psychologist would agree that it would be healthier for me to get my space from such a dominating person. So that's how orphaning works. I just gave you the anatomy of orphaning, how it works in our psychology. But it's not really taking responsibility because the essence of life is taking responsibility. That's not taking responsibility. The reason that I'm calling him dominating is because I have some insecurities about my capability, about my ability to make it. If I didn't have those, I wouldn't see him as dominating. I would see him as my greatest helper, my greatest advocate, which is what your father really is. It's only because of my insecurity that he becomes this dominating force that I have to avoid once I... So the three fingers are here, pointing at me. And when I start taking responsibility for the way I see myself, when I take responsibility for the way I see myself, they become innocent. Want to move over one seat? Just slide on over. How you doing, Mr. Shore? Welcome. Yeah, you can take that cup, even though it might not be yours. When I start taking responsibility for what's going on inside of me, they become innocent. And it's amazing. They literally become innocent. And they don't have to change. I'm the one who has to have that transformation. It's all under the same thing of taking responsibility. You see, most people think taking responsibility means like having a job and paying your bills. Right? Wouldn't your dad be perfectly happy with you if you had a nice paying job and you've got your car payments covered, you got your mortgage covered, you're covering your wife, your kids if you have them, God willing soon. The um, Wouldn't your dad say, isn't he being responsible? Wouldn't he? Meanwhile, every time he calls, you're like, dad, not a good time. Dad, I'm with the kids right now. I just, I can't talk right now. That's what everyone does. All young fathers do that. And only when they're a little older or much older, they start realizing that maybe they should stay on the phone with their dad for a few minutes. So, but the dad would call them responsible. But according to this definition of responsibility, it's not just responsibility to pay your bills. We're talking about the responsibility of, of who you are. Take responsibility for who you are and how you're living in the world with the people you live with. And when you recognize your beauty, which comes vis-a-vis connection to God, because God doesn't create trash. Let me say that again. When you recognize your beauty, which comes vis-a-vis your relationship to God, because God doesn't create trash. And all those little recordings inside our hearts, are that's all trash not being capable, not being lovable, not being good enough, not being, that's all garbage. 
none of it's true. It's just stuff you've been saying to yourself since you're a kid. And when we start taking responsibility for the garbage and say, wait a second, God doesn't create garbage. Where, what's this coming from? It's obviously coming from the past. And, excuse me, I don't want the past dictating my future. Because if the past dictates my future, so then I'm not going to be very excited to start my day, am I? It's going to take serious caffeine to get out of bed. And it's going to take serious wine to forget the whole thing, to start again the next morning. Because who can be excited about a future that's full of the past? Especially when the past has painful very, very vulnerable and sensitive spots, or should I say wounds, unconscious wounds. But false wounds. These were all decisions that a child made. All the wounds, all our soft spots, those fleshy spots that our dad can, that our dad can press on, or our mom can press on, or a sibling, or or a, a person of the opposite gender at a party could potentially wound, put salt on that wound. They all come from experiences that happened when we were very, very, very young. But the problem is, is that we made decisions about ourselves at very young ages. And when you make a decision about yourself at a very young age and it sets in, that becomes your future. Okay, there will be new people, there will be new jobs, there will be new situations, but they'll all perfectly fall into place in this sitcom, this rerun we call life. That is the non-responsibility model. That is the model, what I just gave over, of someone who's not taking responsibility. The responsibility model is someone who says, wait a second, what am I built of? What am I really made of? What's inside my hard drive from my past? What decisions did that little kid make in a very scared situation? Do I want that governing my future? The answer is obviously no, because I see the impact of that. That's going to have a big impact on my relationships. It's going to have a big impact on my financials. If you feel incapable, how much money are you going to make? You know, how much are you going to say you are worth when you get interviewed? And they want to know how much you're going to be asking to make at that job. You're going to lowball yourself if you're coming from that wound of incapable. And... That, so the responsibility model is saying, I don't like those impacts. I don't want to have to have two jobs just because I didn't have the guts to ask for what I should have had. Should have asked for in the beginning. And in the responsibility model, I take responsibility. I put the past in the past. I realize that vis-a-vis God, God doesn't create trash. I am a capable, amazing, lovable, inspirational, spiritual human being who's loving and caring and present that's who I am and that's now going to be the lens I wear for my future when I do that that's the responsibility model then you're taking responsibility for yourself you create that context in the world around you 
by putting it out there every time you walk into a room, every time you meet someone, you put that out there. Because it's, it's the truth. You're not making it up. You hear how you like, for you to say, from now on, for you to say, I am a loving, capable, inspirational, amazing, spiritual, loving human being with financial abundance. Do you see how that would be like contrived? Like that would be like, you see how saying all that would be like, who are you fooling? Right? Well, guess what? The only one you're fooling is yourself to not believe that to be true about yourself. It is absolutely true about every person in this room and every person outside this room and every person watching this video. Think about it. Every person is lovable. I know people, one sec, one, one more second. Every person is lovable. I know people do stupid things sometimes. Even death row has a whole line of moms waiting to see their little tzaddik, their little holy boy who could never do any wrong. You know, they're literally, there's a lineup of moms want to see their son in death row. Meaning, they, meaning they, inside, inside of every human being, under all the veneer of all the trouble they got in, of dumb things they might have done, is a lovable person is a good person. Every human being has a soul. They're automatically spiritual beings. Every person has an, earn, an ability to earn lots of money. Inherently. The system is built, God built this world to have space for everybody to do really well. And you'll see, just watch, anyone who's got like half a bit of knowledge of how things work financially in the marketplace, there's always room for more. Always. You, ideas will come you just wow here's a whole new idea and it's making billions of dollars and that's inside of all of us the ability to connect to that every person in this room is a hundred percent capable of great things for some of us it will come naturally for others it will take more work but it is within us to do it every single one of us is able to give love is to be a loving to be a loving person Every single one of us is a healthy person. Your body is unbelievably resilient. It recreates itself every seven years. All new cells every seven years. What I said about the responsibility model, about you guys and about me, is absolutely true. It is not a lie. It is not contrived. It is not some foreign thing that you're going to pretend you are. It is the truth. And those of us who felt like, how could I ever walk into the world like that? When after all, I mean, I do really feel unlovable and I do really feel not so capable and I do really feel, you know, all those things. That's the lie that you told yourself when you were a little kid in certain situations that took place were that locked in. I know people, not too many, but I know a few people who don't have that lie in their system. It just doesn't exist. One of them was raised in a rainforest in uh, Hawaii. He didn't wear shoes till he was 12 years old. That's also when he got his first haircut. And he just lived with these really, really wild, idealistic parents in the rainforest. You know, Hawaiian rainforest. No civilization at all. And he's, he's unstoppable. 
He's unstoppable. Like, the, he showed, he, all of a sudden they decided to move to Las Vegas. <laughs> 12 years old. You just can imagine this picture. <laughs> he had never worn a shirt until he got on a flight leaving Hawaii. Barefoot. He didn't have shoes. And he, um, his hair was, he said, was down to like his ankles or something. He was raised in the forest. And he, uh, anyway, they, the school wouldn't accept him without shoes and a haircut. So his parents were like, here's a pair of shoes, and here's your haircut. And he was put in the system. So um, the government found out about him while he was in high school. The government found out about him. Because the, I guess this happens in public schools, whereas if you have one kid who's like so far beyond every other kid, I guess they let other people know about it. So the government found out about him. And they, uh, he was not even really asked. He was just recruited into the army at 18 to go into nuclear ballistic missiles, uh, training. And they, they wanted him in nuclear ballistic missiles. <laughs> they actually asked him in the, uh, you know, when he came to the army, they had to, you know, there's questionnaires about your past. So they were like, have you ever, have you ever smoked marijuana? He was like, he was like, I've ever not smoked marijuana. <laughs> you know, since I'm a little baby, I was smoking marijuana. And they, and they were like, no. They checked no. The guy held the thing, held the clipboard. He was supposed to hold the clipboard. He held the clipboard. No. He said, have you ever tried LSD? He says, I was dipped in it. <laughs> I've been pickled in LSD. And the guy checked no. Everything. All the way down the list. Next thing you know, he's in the army and he's in like top secret stuff. Until they realized that he was a danger to, to society. Uh, meaning there would be no way that he'd have loyalty to a government. Any government. And um, so they launched him, honorable discharge. And uh, when he came to Asia Torah, he, uh, he built a hovercraft in his dorm room. <laughs> it wasn't very big because his dorm room was kind of small, so it just carried suitcases. <laughs> it was this whole idea of getting suitcases through the Jewish quarter. Was, but he actually built a hovercraft in his dorm room. But for those of us who were not raised in the Hawaiian rainforest... Things happened. And we make decisions that are big fat lies about ourselves and they've been running our lives ever since. It's so sad for me to, to be in the presence of awesome people all the time who don't know it. Who don't realize how great they are. And you should know, like, I, I, when I travel and people come to my class, I get, I can get large audiences and, they're, they think they're coming for information. You know, they're going to come here a class. You should know they're not coming for information. You know what they're coming for? They're coming for the feeling that they get when I give them who they truly are. Do you hear that? I'm sure they're coming for information too. So it's probably like 30% information, 70% of getting themselves who they truly are. Because that's all I'll ever see in any of you. Is your greatness. And I strongly suggest, why am I bringing this up? 
I'm strongly suggesting that you make sure that people's greatness is shining when you look at them. See people's greatness. People are great. And when you look at people, see their greatness. Reflect them to them. Reflect themselves to themselves when you see them and reflect their greatness. And you know what they're going to be? They're going to be great. The more you hang out with people who see you as great, you will be great. And the problem is a lot of us have family and friends that already see us another way already. They've seen us as the way we've been in the past. And that gives us who we are. So we have to create a strong enough snowball effect of who we truly are. First of all, by being around people who see that in us. That gives you a big strength. Make sure you're surrounding yourself with people who see your greatness and your beauty. After that snowball's big enough, then you can bring your snowball over to, to people who've shared your life in the, from the past who say, wow, it's the new you. It's the possible you. And you'd be like, yeah, you know, this is who I am. You know, I don't know what that garbage was, but God doesn't create trash. The truth is, everything I just said in this class was all introduction to my seminar, which is starting Sunday. My Sunday seminar is it's Sunday to Sunday. It's four hours a night, six thirty, ten thirty at night, in a very sealed, tight container of men who are working on themselves together and you're welcome as well Mr. Shore it's a big time commitment but it's a big time of your life all ages and um, it's uh, a lot of people have to change flights some people are flying in and every time it's uh, it's a bit of a craziness with travel agents and stuff but it's Sunday to Sunday we're going to work very hard four hours a night it's really the how-to of this class Everything we talk about in this class, we break it down detail by detail by detail until we really get it, also with various exercises. And once we get it and we are able to put it in the world, fabulous results. I mean, unpredictable results. And you have no idea how predictable, or maybe you do after this class, how predictable things get. Right? The rerun, the rerun, uh, uh, scenario so uh, unpredictable results very exciting results I can't say that it will make you more Jewish if that's why you came to Israel uh, it's not about that it's not about religion it's not about God or Torah it's really about who we are as human beings and, and I've started to include more Torah in it because people were complaining like Rabbi you know can't you bring up God a little bit here? You know? So I, God's back in the seminar a bit. But, you know, I mean, whatever. I was keeping, I wasn't keeping God out of it for any other reason than um, just to keep the Yetzirah away. You know, the Yetzirah could get in the way of this work. and So you keep, keep it just as personal growth work. And uh, less dangerous. Okay. Now, the spirit side of the board has to do with the 
Um, like it would be a good example would be meditation. If you were to meditate all day, you wouldn't be a spiritual person. You'd be spirit because you're not in ritual. You fast, you're celibate, you're sitting there meditating 23 hours a day. There's no ritual involved, or at least there's very little. So that we're going to say is represented by Eastern tradition. So Eastern tradition would be more focused, even though there's plenty of ritual in the East, it would be more focused on spirit. And in the West, we would find much more what? Ritual. They'd be more ritual-oriented people. Not that there isn't spirit, but the focus is on ritual. And Judaism is actually, or I'm going to ask you, what's exactly between, geographically, between Kathmandu and Rome? What? The Middle East. Israel. Israel's right down the center. Now, Eastern tradition sees the world as cyclical. What comes around goes around. Everything's cyclical. Because the nature of the world is cyclical. You know, the cycle of the seasons and the birth and death and reincarnation and uh, the hydrological system of evaporation and the rain. Everything's flowing like that. The woman's reproductive system, the moon's waxing away, everything. Everything you look at in the natural world is going to be cyclical. And that's why spiritual people generally go for the cyclical way of looking at things. Westerners, on the other hand, see the world as linear. Right? There's a beginning and it's going up through time. Not a great move spiritually to do such a thing, um, to see the world that way, because it's a bit cut off. One year doesn't relate to the next and whatever. But, it, but on the other hand, Easterners don't really rep- have any representation of passage of time. Westerners don't have any representation of the cyclical nature of things. But if you go right in the middle where Israel is, you get the mixture of both linear and cyclical. And what? How do you draw a picture of linear and cyclical? Cyclical. What? Yeah. Well, I'm just going to put a spiral. I'll make it a cone-shaped spiral because it's going to all come to a climactic end. So you have the date, like this is Shavuos, the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. It's going to come around every year. On that day, which by the way I'll be teaching in here at uh, 1.30. So um, so that's the window in time right there called Shavuos. It is the time that Torah is pumped into creation. That is the window where Torah comes down. Meaning Judaism is non-commemorative. It's not like the 4th of July commemorating the United States independence where you just go get drunk and watch a parade or something. The, uh, the, it, that's a commemoration. It's a memory of something that happened. The, in Judaism, even though it's true that the Torah came down on that day, the 6th of Sivan, 3,300 in two more days, 21 years ago, even though that's when it happened, it is not a commemoration. It is a pipe. It is a window that's for a pipe. 
that is aligning as it's aligned for all those years. And by the way, before the sixth of Sivan, it was aligning then. We just hadn't gotten the Torah yet. It's a permanent alignment in history. In fact, the word Yom Hashishi that we start Kiddush with, it's from the Torah when the, on the sixth day, instead of saying, uh, six days, it says, the sixth day, Yom Hashishi. When you click on it, one of the commentaries says, it's talking about the sixth day, meaning the sixth day of Sivan when the Torah will be given. It's already hinting at it at the very creation of the world. That there will be a day when the instructions come to earth. And this is the way we see time. This is the way everything is working. To fill in the first three hours of the day is a window. It's a window that opens in the zodiac and then closes after... Th- um, cl- I'm sorry, not the first three hours. Did I say to fill in? Shema. Shema starts the first three hours of the day and ends then. Then saying Shema after that is you're not doing what it pumps into the world, i.e. God's oneness. God's oneness doesn't pump into the world like it does through Shema after the first three hours. Tefillin's only after, at a certain point after dawn. You put it on before that, it's a blessing in vain. It's not tefillin yet. So everything really works on this cyclical flow. And that the whole job of Jews is really just to be flowers. We're there to get on the negative commandments, to get out of the way of the flow. And the positive commandments is to get in the flow and cause it to flow down. Negative commandments, stay out of the way of the flow. Positive commandments, get in there and flow this in. Flow this into the world. Okay, everyone. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.